This episode of Live from CapTime's Idea Fest is sponsored by Exact Sciences. Learn more about Exact Sciences' mission to beat cancer through early detection at exactsciences.com. Hello, and welcome to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. I'm Eric Lawrenson. Over the course of the coming weeks, we're going to be bringing you recordings from the second annual Cap Times Idea Fest, a two day event on the University of Wisconsin Madison campus full of smart conversations about politics, community, and culture. Today, we bring you a conversation with Charles Franklin, the director of the Marquette Law School poll. The Marquette Poll has earned a sterling reputation among journalists and political operatives as a reliable measure of what Wisconsinites think of elected officials, political candidates, and issues of the day. In his talk with WKOW Capitol Bureau Chief Emily Fannin at the Idea Fest, Franklin takes a deep dive into the numbers, going into rich detail about the findings from the latest poll. We'll start with Franklin's take on where things stand with the midterm elections. I did toy with the idea of not mentioning who's ahead at all, because, you know, horse race, who cares about that? But I figure we all really do, if we're honest. So I'm going to start by running through where the races stand as of our last poll that was now a couple of weeks ago. Um, We'll be doing two more before the end of the campaign, but we don't announce the dates of those in advance, so you'll see them coming up between sometime over the next five weeks. And I want to just take you through where the races stand, and then I want to shift to uh, how well-known the candidates are and how their favorable versus unfavorable balance is. And then we're going to turn to the issue of gender and politics and the gender gap. Uh, Events of the last week certainly uh, put that front and center, but even before the recent controversies, uh, gender plays a big role, and it's a little more complicated than it's sometimes presented. So... That's the deep dive part of this. Uh, You can do like my undergrads and leave at halftime. But uh, if you can stick through it, I'm going to take you through how gender affects opinion and how that effect is modified by other things. It's not just gender, but gender in combination with other things. Here is the, uh, and we're going to begin with likely voters. These are people who say they're absolutely certain that they're going to vote in the fall election. Uh, So in August, we had a 46-46 tie in the governor's race. This was, uh, we were in the field then the day after the primary. So this is our baseline reading before the ad campaign really ramps up, right after the primary has ended. So a 46-46 tie between Evers and Walker. Um, In June, when we had asked it for likely voters, Walker was up by two points. And then two weeks ago, it's Evers by five, 49-44. So you might notice that trend, plus two for Walker, dead even, plus five for Evers. Other polling that's been done since the primary here in the governor's race has shown... um, uh, 
Evers ahead by as much as seven points. Uh, there's one at five, there's one at four, there are two at two, there's our own at five, um, and uh, our tie in, in August. So that range certainly makes it look like Evers has a single-digit advantage, but exactly how big it is is uncertain. But at least in my perspective, those polls are agreeing pretty well with each other in that we're seeing them all with a bit of an Evers advantage, but you're not seeing one that has Walker up by six or one that shows Evers up by 17. So it's a pretty compact set. Um, if we turn to the Senate race, in August we had Baldwin up by just two points over Vukmir, but in September that expanded to a much bigger 11-point lead, 53-42. Now here there has been a bit more of a range, but it seems to be tied to who's a likely voter, especially in August. Um, in our August data for registered voters, which is the bigger group of everybody that's registered, but it includes people who say they're not very likely to vote this year. There, Baldwin was up by uh, nine, I believe it was, in August. Maybe it was seven, but up by a good bit. Then she jumps to this 11-point lead in September with likely voters. I think that's something to do with the uh, likelihood of voting and a, <clears throat> and a bit of a surge for her. But there, outside polling has shown her with leads that range from the mid-teens down to the 7 or 8 range. And so our 11 right here is, again, more or less to the middle of that range. But it's a range that's a good deal higher than the range we've seen in the governor's race. Now, as far as I know, we're the only poll that's looked at the attorney general's race. There may be something out there that I've missed, so... Go check it out for yourself, but I'm not aware of another AG's race. And this is the first time, our September data was the first time we polled the Attorney General's race. And there, the incumbent Brad Schimmel, the Republican, leads Josh Call by um, 7, 41-48. Um, now, I want to pause for just a second to put the perspective here. This is exactly the same group of 614 voters that go from an 11-point Baldwin lead to a 5-point Evers lead to a 7-point Schimmel lead. And so that's just worth noting because it's easy to think that everybody just reports their party. They're all voting with party. There's no difference across the candidates or across the races. And I think this really nice range is a, is a good example of how much campaigns matter. You still have 10 people, 10 about. You know, we still don't even know between yeah, the two. Right. Uh, and that 10% is the higher number. If we back up to the Senate, it was 4%. And to the governor's race, it was just 1%. Now, those are low numbers no matter how you slice them for undecideds. But I should tell you, our question asks who you're going to vote for. And if you say undecided, we say, well, if you had to decide today, how would you vote? Or how do you lean? And so these are leaned vote questions, and that means a little fewer undecideds. However, it doesn't materially affect the results. Next, we're going to look at Tony Evers' favorability, um, his rating among likely voters. And this is the September data. So if I just told you campaigns matter, let's see how they matter, campaigns and candidates. So th this is Evers, still likely voters, still September-only data. 
And the thing I'd start with is the 31% that don't know or don't recognize his name. Um, I want to say this is, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure less than 31% of you today don't recognize his name. Um, there, there are two parts to make, though. We make this recognition question deliberately hard because the way we ask it is, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of, fill in the name, Tony Evers, or haven't you heard enough to have an opinion yet? Okay? We don't tell you Tony Evers, school superintendent, or Tony Evers, Democratic candidate for governor, because we want to know whether you spontaneously know that name. Later, when we ask the vote, we give that sort of information. If, you were, if the election were held today, would you vote for the Democrat Tony Evers or the Republican Scott Walker or the Libertarian Phil Anderson? So we're giving you names and parties. So that's why the vote share can be a good deal higher for somebody that otherwise has very low name recognition. Now, Evers started this spring at over 60% don't know haven't heard enough. So this number has come down considerably over time, and this is a common pattern. Tammy Baldwin in 2012, having been in the House for a long time, started with over 55% don't know, and that came down into the teens by election day, low teens actually. So this is not unusual, but it does put in perspective that Evers is still not the household name that he may be in your household. You might be surprised. Uh, some people might not know their governor either. <laughs> yeah, <that's> so right. <laughs> we'll get to uh, that. <laughs> uh, exactly. So if we look at uh, Leo Vukmir, I'm looking at the non-incumbents to start with here, how, how it goes this way. 36% don't recognize her name, whereas Evers was net positive by 11 points. Vukmir is net negative in this sample by 12 points. So And a little bit higher non-recognition rate. Also one that's been coming down considerably from the 70s in the spring. But Walker, 2% haven't heard of him. Some people I'm not know. sure who Some those people, people are. <laughs> I mean, uh, exactly. they might not know. Uh, they might God be less informed, perhaps. <laughs> um, but you can also see his favorability is a little upside down right now. Over the course of his term in office, um, he was underwater in favorability and job approval. The two track very closely with one another. So he was underwater during Act 10 in 2011. He was down into the, the lowest was, I believe, a 36% approval in just one poll. But he was mostly in the low 30s, I'm sorry, high 30s, low 40s during 2011 at the height of Act 10. And then in, in the Fall of 11, and especially in the spring during the, the recall campaign, that net favorability or approval moved up to the point of parity, where he was equal in approval and disapproval. And then it fluctuated a bit and ended up with him a little bit more approved than disapproved, like 49 to 45 or 6. So not a big difference, but a little more net positive. Then, of course, he wins the recall, and then from there through the 2014 election, maintains net approval by that same roughly 49% or so average to about a 44% disapproval. That was very stable. In 2015, 
as he launched the presidential campaign and also proposed a budget that was widely criticized even among Republicans in the legislature, which was sort of a critical point that people within his own party became critical of that budget. His approval dropped back down into the low 40s and ultimately bottomed out in the high 30s. It actually reached the same low point that it had reached in that one poll during Act 10. Since the summer of 16, that's been building up to parity again and has been equal favorable and unfavorable, approve and disapprove, until this last month's poll, the September poll, where you can see favorability is a negative seven, approvals I think a negative five. Um, so that's been the dynamic of the Walker administration. Um, here is uh, Tammy Baldwin, a net positive of 48. She, and, and perhaps you'll find this surprising, like um, Senator Johnson, have been almost, have been very similar in their profiles over their terms in office, meaning their favorables and unfavorables have been close to one another, sometimes a little net positive, sometimes a little net negative, but neither one has broken out as a strongly positive or strongly negative uh, senator. And both of them, people forget about them between elections. Both of them have don't know rates in the mid to upper 20s until recently. And you can see that in the campaign, Baldwin's come down to 12% that don't know. Um, uh, here's Schimmel, though, and this is interesting because after four years as Attorney General, 56% still don't have a, uh, don't, aren't able to recognize the name when it's presented cold to them. So this is where the campaign may matter the most in the AG's race because there's so much more don't know rate, so much more opportunity, but it lives in the shadow of the Senate and the governor's races. So becoming visible, becoming, um, uh, you know, prominent in people's advertising streams or in their news streams will be a challenge for the AG's race. So, so this was the big picture. This was the horse race. Now forget about the horse race. I want to talk about gender. Um, and I'm going to do two things that are going to shift the focus just a little bit. I want you to be fully aware of them. I'm going to start combining the September and <coughs> August data so I have more cases to work with. So when I'm comparing men and women, I've got the maximum number of cases. That means, and I'm also switching to registered voters, everybody. Because the focus here is not on who's ahead. The focus here is on how do men and women, women differ in their preferences, okay? So everything from here on out is not trying to predict what the vote will be. You've just seen all of that stuff, and we've got five weeks to go in the campaign anyway. Things could 38 change. Thirty-eight days, but who's 38 counting? Days, right? but who's who's counting? counting? <laughs> How many shows have you got to do between now and I got then? a lot. <laughs> got a lot of time to uh, go. Uh, he, from here on out, what I want to focus on is gender and other things that affect gender differences. Um, you hear a lot of loose talk about the gender gap, and I'm probably guilty of that as well. We just compare men and women, and we let it go with that. And at some level, that's okay, but I hope the other things I'm going to show you will tell you there's a little more complicated set of stuff going on here. There's a huge caveat here. Our data, except for one night, were all collected before Dr. Ford's allegations came out. And so it's 
the next pole that's going to be the comparison to this baseline. So you can see what differences there were before, before. that mm -hmm. really blew up. And then the next poll, we'll be able to do a deep dive in how it looks after all that news. So here's your simplest cut at gender gap. Um, men are going 39 to 49 plus 10 for Walker. Women are going 51 41 plus 10 for Evers. So I'll also say you'll often see this reported in different ways. You could say that there's a 39 to 51 difference here a 12-point gender gap, right? Or you could say men are plus 10 Republican and women are plus 10 Democrats, so it's a 20-point difference. The numbers are exactly the same, right? Uh, and so you will see people talk about the gender gap, and sometimes it'll seem like it's an enormous number because they're talking about this difference of two differences. And sometimes they'll do it by just looking at the Democratic vote or the Republican vote for men and women but those two numbers don't have to be the same thing. So, you know, and, and usually folks won't really tell you what they're doing anyways, but I just got to point that out. So this is a pretty significant difference. Um, remember, it's combining two polls, one of which was close to tide and one of which was a pretty substantial Evers margin. So, again, I'm telling you, this is not predictive of where we are today, but it's a pretty significant gap. This next one is pretty interesting. It's breaking down um, gender and also college education or not. Yeah. Um, is this the first time you did did something like this? I, I presented it in September. I've I've tweeted about it before, but we've never included it in a presentation okay. before. This is something that's been written a good bit about, especially by Ron Brownstein, who's a L.A. Times or lo long time ago L.A. Times, now a CNN. Uh, reporter, but I, I think, and Atlantic Monthly writes a lot for the Atlantic. Uh, one of the best quantitative journalists in the national scene. And he's been pushing this point quite a bit. I jokingly call this my Brownstein graph because it's the thing that he's obsessed by, but it is a good reason to be obsessed by it. It arises in large part because of the Trump vote phenomena and the question of how did society stratify in the 2016 election and now with favorability and approval of the president. But what it does is it splits out white voters by both sex and education. What Brownstein has pointed out is that to a degree bigger than it was in the past, education has become an important predictor of presidential vote. As recently as 2012, the education effect was fairly modest, that lower education voters were fairly Democratic, higher education voters were somewhat Republican. There was a bit of a relationship. But the Pew Center, which is one of the best national pollsters, has gone back and looked at this from the 90s to the present. And education has modest, modest effects in the 90s and the early 2000s. It rises a bit during the Obama years, and then it moves up even more sharply in the 2016 election. But it's not just education, which is Brownstein's insight here. It's also combined with gender that you get these really substantial differences. White, male, non-college. They are going for Walker 52 to 36. Pretty big gap. 
Next to them are white female non-college, and they're going for Walker, but by just two points. Then is white male college going for Walker by three. And then finally, white female college going for Evers, 58 to 37, a bigger gap here than you saw for the white male non-college over there. Okay, Non-college women and uh, college men often, but not always, as you'll see, are pretty close to evenly balanced. But the white non-college males are pretty strongly Republican, and the white women college grads are quite strongly Democratic. And that's the simple point of all of this, that the gap between men and women is pretty big, but the gap between non-college men and college women is truly enormous. And that's part of what has grown over this period, um, over the last, let's just call it the last 12 years for ease. Another thing that has been a part of the gender gap is marital status. And, you know, that's certainly a social institution that you might expect would have some, some differences. It, in the past, has looked pretty strong as a range from married men, 38 to 52 for Walker, married women, Evers actually, 49, 44, men who are not married, 41, 44, even balance, and not married women, heavily for Evers, 54, 36. Now, it's interesting that this year we're seeing married women still tilting Democratic, whereas married women in earlier years would tilt a bit Republican, but not as much as married men. So it's looking here, and you'll see in subsequent slides, like maybe married women are tilting more Democratic than married women did in the past. The catchphrase you're hearing all the time these days is suburban moms, and I'm not a big fan of catchphrases, um, but... If you think of that a little differently, think of suburban moms as also more likely to be college educated, certainly if we're thinking about the Milwaukee suburbs, for example, or, or the Madison suburbs, for that matter. And the other thing about suburban moms is they're more likely to be married. And so both marriage and education and race and gender are all packed together in this suburban mom phenomenon. So here's one of the, here's the fly in the ointment. Party ID is enormous as a predictor of vote compared to anything else in the known universe. 93% okay? um, of Republicans are going for Walker over here on the left. 90% of Democrats going for Evers. And in independence, it's a bit split, but it's a six-point advantage to Evers. Uh, that's actually a 20-point advantage to Evers in the September data alone. Independents aren't tied to party. They can fluctuate quite a bit. I wouldn't be surprised to see them fluctuate more between now and Election Day. Um, but that means that if you're talking about Republicans, the difference between men and women Republicans is a different gender gap than it is for men and women overall. If you're talking about Democrats, the difference between men and women Democrats is different. First of all, partisanship by gender, 
men, 33% Republican, women, 30% Republican. That's basically the same, right? Men and women are about equally likely to call themselves Republicans. But then a big gap on party. Only 21% of men call themselves Democrats. 20 points higher, 41% of women call themselves Democrats. So since Republicans are roughly the same, and there's this giant gap, what's the difference? Men much more likely to profess to be independents these days, women at 28% less likely to choose independence. So this raises a critical question that I won't fully answer. Are women voting the way they are because they're predominantly Democrats? Or are women predominantly Democrats because they're choosing the Democratic Party based on issues and cultural issues and so on. And so if you believe the second part of those, it really does reflect fundamental or important political differences between the genders. If you believe it's the second, then or the first, then just for some reason more women are Democrats and they vote like Democrats. Okay, in which case gender doesn't seem as critical. So I'm going to show you the breakdown within party now. 94% of men are going of Republican men are going for Walker. It's just three points less, 91% among Republican women. Okay? So there's it's a pretty trivial gap, actually, in terms of margin of error and whatnot. It's a little bit. But for, for Democratic men and women, it's actually also a bit of a gap with more Democratic men going for Evers, slightly fewer Democratic women going for, um, for Evers. Part of the difference there is more in the don't know rate than anything else, okay, undecided. Uh, we'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, but if we come over to the independents, then you see the gap come back. 40% uh, of independent men for Evers, 49 back to about a nine-point gap, not quite 10, but a substantial gap there. Um, the uh, Walker vote, though, is actually about the same. And where's the difference? Look at support for the libertarian Phil Anderson. It's 17% among independent men. And what did we see just a moment ago about men and independence? 45% of them are independent. So you both get that independents are a pretty big bunch of men, and Phil Anderson is a, well, libertarian. You can call that an independent or not. He's not a dem or a rep. And he's actually harvesting quite a bit of the vote out of that. Uh, even among women, he's getting 10%, but it's still a pretty, pretty big gap there. So all I want to say is that when you see the gender gap talked about as if party played no role in that, you should pull back a little bit because... It doesn't mean that if you go to the convention of Republican women, you're going to find a whole lot of women that look very different from the men that are at that or Republican men. They'll be a little different, and on some issues more so. But within party, these differences are much more muted than when you see them presented as just this big gender gap without any qualification. So you see a pretty big gender gap here for the Senate. It's especially notable on the, the, for women and going for Baldwin. It's a 26-point gap. And again, we're still combining 
one poll that was close and one poll that was not close. So that's, that's quite a split. Um, when we go to the race and gender and education, you see, again, the polls are very much the same. 39.54 for white males favoring uh, Vukmir, but 63.33 for white college females favoring Baldwin. But when I showed you the last slide, um, the, the governor's race, white female non-college were about even. In this race, they're tilting more for Baldwin. Uh, I do have to say that could be because of Vukmir's relative lack of name recognition compared to Baldwin's, so maybe that'll shift a little bit. Um, and the college men are dead even, uh, and non-whites and Hispanics are substantially in Baldwin's camp. Here's the other part I wanted to push. So the married, the married men and the unmarried women are quite a bit different. Yes, there's a big age effect there as well. Put that in there. Uh, but widows and divorced and separated people are also in the non-married group. So they're on balance older, but politically very similar to those who've never been married. So yeah, there is an age effect lurking in here, but the people I'm combining in that last category do in fact cover more of an age range than, than you might think. Um, but here again, like we saw with the governor's race, the married women are not where the unmarried women are, but they're also not that close. In fact, they're the opposite here of where the married men are. So there's division here with a gender effect even inside the marital status. Here's vote by party. Uh, Vukmir's only, in quotes, getting 86% of the Republican vote. Um, remember, it was in the 90s for both candidates for governor. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see that number go up a little bit. But at the moment, Baldwin is picking up a nine-point crossover, which is uh, more substantial than the crossover the other way, three times what this one is. But Baldwin's also doing quite well among independents. Now we break it down within party. And for men and women Republicans, notice that for women it's four points higher for the Baldwin vote and seven points lower for the Vukmir vote. So that suggests a bit of a party difference, I mean a, a gender difference within party here, which is a little bit more substantial than what we saw for the governor's race. The Democratic side is pre pretty similar, but notice uh, uh, women are going more for Baldwin than men are by a little bit. Remember, it was the opposite with the governor's vote by just a little bit. That may just be noise. But when we come to independence, there's again a very big gender effect within independence that's especially for independent women very strongly for Baldwin and a little bit with men. Um, Trump approval, um, men net positive 52 to 35. Uh, and you should say, I should have said his overall approval in this poll, these two polls is about 43 or four approve and about 51 disapprove. So men are very different from the overall sample, but women are even more different than the overall sample. So let's go through that same set of modifiers. For white male non-college, it's 57-41, but for white female college, it's 
29 to 66, uh, more than two to one margin. So that's really substantial. And the white non-college women, who are often a more Republican-leaning group, are more negative about Trump. The men, the college men, white college men, are net negative, but only by a small amount. So they're sort of still in that middle category of male, which pushes them in a Republican direction, but college, which pushes them in a Democratic direction. Um, and again, non-whites and Hispanics are pretty negative on the president. Um, if we go to marital status, here's that effect again with the married women much more imbalanced than what we've seen in previous years, previous elections. So the gender effect seems to be having more of an effect than marriage does in this group. Uh, and again, the opposites are, are quite, quite different. Um, Party ID, not unlike the vote, is pretty strongly split, though it's now down to 84%, and in our latest poll, 81% approval among Republicans. It's been up in the 80s and been very stable. It's dropped off just a little bit recently here and in national data as well. Uh, I don't think this is plummeting, but it's moved down just a little bit lately. Um, so what do we see with men and women within party? Actually, not trivial. An eight-point gap in Trump approval between Republican men and Republican women. Men and women Democrats are united. <laughs> Pretty strong. Okay, I'm going to make a joke here. Who thought Democrats could be that united over anything? Right. And then when we get out here to independence, men, uh, independent men are dead evenly split on Trump, but the women are very negative about him. So you've got... Two groups, Republicans, where it's a modest effect, but it's one where women are more negative to Trump, and independent women, where it's an enormous effect of antipathy to Trump. All right, we are going to jump to the opinion. We're going to skip through how uh, men and female feel about property taxes, what's more important in education. Yeah. We're going to jump to Kavanaugh. And just remember, this was taken before all these allegations came out, but it just gives you an interesting perspective of how people were feeling even before, um, you know, the nation's attention caught the, the hearing. Yeah. You can basically see the punchline. Women are more pro-K-12 spending, but men, a majority of men, prefer more spending for K-12 rather than further property tax cuts. We asked about Kavanaugh in July. And a, yeah. Sorry? July, right? Yeah. Started in July. yeah, no, that's correct. We asked about it in July right after he'd been nominated. And we asked about it again in September. Uh, the August survey was crowded with all the horse race stuff, so that's why he wasn't in there in August. Um, and I think I can tell you that we'll probably ask about him again. Uh, maybe, 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 maybe. I, I don't if know. People care. Uh, I mean. Maybe not. <laughs> not newsworthy, right? Maybe. Uh, so I just got to stress for the last time. This is before the news broke. There was one night while it was breaking, but that's not enough to shift the percentages much here. The big thing I want to push here, actually, is so Kavanaugh, well, I said that wrong. <laughs> so with men, you have a net positive to Kavanaugh, but a pretty substantial 35 don't know. For women, it's net negative by a bit, nine points, but a bigger don't know. And this is the kind of comparison I want to make 
that with Kavanaugh, you're going to consistently see more lack of opinion by both men and women, but especially so for women. And it's going to be fascinating to see in the next poll how much that formation of opinion takes place and, as well as the change in the balance. And the interesting of not heard about him. Absolutely. I would hope uh, Absolutely. more people would know his name yeah. after this week, um, but you know, no. Also, I will say, might jump down a un, this is important. Unlike our usual recognition question, with Kavanaugh, we actually said, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of Brett Kavanaugh, who has been nominated to the Supreme Court? Right? Because, first of all, I thought his name was probably so unfamiliar in July that I needed to give that cue. But I also wanted people to evaluate him in light of that nomination. So that is a difference in the way we ask this question. Um, still, almost half of women across these two samples uh, withheld judgment about him, said they hadn't heard enough to have an opinion. Um, when we look at the education effect, on the one hand, you can see that white male non-college are disproportionately pro-Kavanaugh, but now white female non-college are evenly divided. Remember in most of the slides I've been showing you, they were more clearly pro-democratic? Well, here they're evenly split, but with 48% not holding an opinion. The white college males are evenly split across all three categories. And the college women are quite negative by 22 points, but still with a 32% haven't heard enough rating. When we, when we go, and, and for non-whites and Hispanics, there's also a big 51% haven't heard enough. When we go to uh, marital status, again, remember this group of married females has been leaning Democratic. It is still leaning a little bit against Kavanaugh, but when you've got 42% undecided, it's the undecided that's driving this more than anything else. Not married men, evenly split on a lot undecided. Married females, uh, a nine-point net negative, but the highest undecided rate of all. So this is a, a, a pattern you're seeing in every one of these tables. When we look at it by party ID, it's actually sort of surprising. Look at the don't know by Republicans, by Democrats, and by independents. You might have thought Republicans would immediately know a Republican nominee to the court or a nominee by a Republican president to the court. So I was a little surprised that it turns out almost no real party difference in familiarity. Again, then, uh, who knows now. There's a deep divide in favorable or unfavorable by party, as you would expect. But still, with over a third in every group saying they don't know enough, and the independence on net being just a little bit positively disposed to the nomination. Um, within party, now here's the real rub. So first of all, women are considerably less approving, less favorable to him among Republicans. But most of that gap is coming from the difference in don't know. There's three-point difference in the unfavorable but eight-point difference in the don't-know rate. So it's not that he's unfavorable because they don't like him. It's unfavorable because they haven't made up their minds about him. Um, on the Democratic side, we see the same thing. He's net negative, 
but women are less likely to express an opinion about him. Um, when we look at independence, women are much more likely to not express an opinion about him. So this is a case where the differences in the gender gap are really being affected by how opinionated people are, how willing they are to express an opinion about this, um, and that's where we get those pretty big differences. I want to sum that up just a moment. There have been really interesting studies of political knowledge, and this goes to uh, the idea that uh, men, and especially boy students in classes, are unaware of how ignorant they are and how willing they are to express that ignorance. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's my people, what yeah. can I say? Uh, but this shows up in political knowledge and surveys as well. We've asked in not my surveys, but other surveys I've been associated with, a regular battery since the 1980s about political knowledge by saying, who is, and then we give a name, and what's his position. So we might say, who is Paul Ryan? What position does he hold? Speaker of the House, we would accept, Republican member of Congress. Um, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court is on that list of names. Um, what you consistently find is women look not a lot, but a little bit less knowledgeable than men by five to ten points, across asking them about six or seven different positions in people. Okay? But if you force people to answer, you say, if they say, I don't know who that is, you say, well, what's your best guess? All the difference disappears. So it seems that that, whether you want to blame the guys for being too willing to say something when they're not sure about it, or think that women are a little more reluctant to express an opinion they're not completely certain about. But when you push, you get no knowledge differences between the sexes at all. There's also a side, a side version of that. Women are a little less likely than men to say that they're absolutely certain they'll vote this fall. But by all the data, they're a bit more likely to actually vote. So that's another manifestation about this. It's not a huge gap, but it is a gap that's consistently there. Um, so part of what we're seeing, especially with the Kavanaugh effect, may be the, this is a newcomer to the political scene. People are uncertain of details about him. There may be a little bit of an effect there. Um, we have a lot of questions about your poll in general. Mm -hmm. um, how is it conducted? Sure. How many people? Landlines, cell sure. phones. Great. Um, what if someone doesn't answer? And how do right. you reach millennials? Sure. Um, many, when I see a I don't number, care I don't, about millennials. You know, <laughs> I want them to go away. <laughs> when I see a number... <laughs> Get off my lawn! <laughs> Uh, when I don't see a number I don't recognize, no, no. I usually don't answer. So yeah, there was a lot no, about the poll itself. I, that's we'll great. Those first. Uh, I'm always interested that you guys should have taken my polling methodology class when I taught here. <laughs> um, but I am pleased to deal with the question. Uh, it takes a semester to answer it, but, you know. Um, so quickly, our normal sample is about is 800 people statewide. As we come up to the election, we'll do 1,000 and then 1,400, just so we have bigger samples close to the election. But 800's the norm. Out of that, we'll have about 600 or a little more than 600 who say they're certain they're going to vote. That's the 
likely voter sample. Now that'll go up when we go from 800 to 1,000 into 1,400. Typically, that gives us a margin of error of about 4% on the all-registered voters and something close to 4.5% for likely voters. But the methodology is we and almost all media pollsters use random digit dialing. And what that means is you can go to what we used to call the phone company and get a list of every area code and exchange in the state. So I can get 608238, okay? Then the computer generates a four-digit random number so that every number from 0000 to 9999 has the same chance of being drawn. And we can do that for both landline and cell phones. So there's a lot of belief that cell phones are a big problem. They're really not anymore. They were a problem when you had to pay through the nose for every minute of use. But that was a problem of 2000 to 2005. Today, you just use your phone. Nobody, I've, ne I've never had a respondent say they wouldn't do the interview because it was going to cost too much on their cell phone minutes. Um, so that part of it is not actually a problem. Um, there's about 60% of the state, by the best federal estimates, who are, land, or who are cell phone only. And our samples are always 60% cell phone, 40% landline, matching that. I will say that the political gap between cell phone and landline has basically gone away. There's still a big demographic gap. Young people don't have landlines. Um, but those don't seem to have big political ramifications that are different in our landline and cell sample. Um, uh, we use professional interviewers. We don't use students to make the calls. Uh, so that's got a lot of institutional value to it because these folks do it for their day job. And um, there's a facility that's um, highly uh, computerized to monitor calls, place calls, and all that sort of stuff. Now, the biggest, biggest, biggest problem we have is simply people don't pick up. Okay? I'm sure that you will not. Um, about 85 to 90% of calls are never picked up. Even though we will call back a number up to six times over four days of interviewing or five days of interviewing. At the fourth, I usually pick up. At yeah, the well, we, we, yeah. <laughs> well, but you'd be surprised. This is why we call back. We get a surprising number of answers on the fifth or mm -hmm. fourth or sixth call. So it's not as simple as I never answer an unknown number. Because the number that would come up will just show you that it's our call center's number. You wouldn't know that it's Marquette calling. It's actually a good thing because people decide to answer or not without prior knowledge that it's a poll. I would rather a smaller net group of people pick up blind to that fact rather than only have people pick up who are so super motivated that they love the idea of doing a poll. <laughs> so I'll occasionally get people that offer their phone number to me to say, I would love to do your poll. Here's my number. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, folks, it doesn't work doesn't that work way. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> um, but it also means we may well have called over half of you here because of we're on our, this next poll will be our 49th statewide poll. 
So we have dialed a high percentage of phone numbers in the state, mostly without you answering. So you got to pick up every call, and if it's me, do the interview, and if it's not, hang up on them. I don't care. And, uh, um, and uh, so, people were wondering if your polls are online. They are. Yes. Um, if you, I, I usually just do the lovely Google Marquette yeah. University Law School poll. All of uh, the information, all yep. past polls are there. So if this was way over your head or you loved looking at this and you want to compare other times and years, um, it's all online. Yep. And it's, uh, it, it's a fun time. And the Google <laughs> will also hopefully get you to the law school's main page and from there to the link to the day of release. We live stream the video for the release at 12.15 to 1.15 uh, normally on Wednesdays and will be for the next two. Um, and um, you will also find the web pages that have yep. the past past results. It's a live stream. It's it's yeah. very similar to this aspect. Um, I think we'll save this question for last because I okay. think you get asked this uh -oh. a lot. Um, historically, Wisconsin has been described as an independent state. <coughs> what is your opinion at this time? Um, I think we're still very much a, a purple state. I, I, I back you up. Tommy Thompson won four times for governor, but I think it was only one two-year period that he had an all-Republican legislature. You know, sometimes it was the Assembly and sometimes it was the Senate that was the Democratic uh, majority. But we had a long stretch there with what seemed like an undefeatable Republican governor, excuse me, <clears throat> but with divided state government. You know, it's really exceptional all the way back to the 40s, really, for us to have unified government, but that may be easily forgotten since 2010, where we've had unified government the whole time. And so, you know, I think that is legitimately an indicator that we may have shifted more in a Republican direction than we were before, that that unified Republican government has sustained itself through all of these elections. And yes, gerrymandering is part of that. I know that. Um, but you've also had statewide races won by Walker three times and Johnson twice and Baldwin once. So, you know, there is uh, a kind of a mixed picture there. Um, Trump winning was certainly a surprise to me and to others. That kind of leads to uh, yeah, the I, 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 I know it's coming, but, <laughs> uh, but the point I actually want to make is to remember that Donald Trump won this state by 0.75 percentage points, 22,000 votes, which is far less than either the Libertarian or the Green Party candidate received, and certainly a lot less than the non-voters in the state. Um, so it is, I think, wrong to think that the state has shifted into either a red state or less reasonably a blue state. I think it's still very competitive. We have seen a little bit of a rise in Republican identification in our polling in the last year, two years. And that seems largely driven by the people I've been talking about, the white male non-college graduates who have gone from being a net plus five Republican to a net plus 16 Republican since 2012 when our polling began. That's not just a Trump effect, though. It's been rising sort of slowly but steadily over the six years that I've been doing the Marquette poll. 
It may have picked up a little bit in the post-Trump period, but it's not a lot bigger. It's certainly not a difference in kind. It may be just a little bit more prominent. Um, the college women are trending in a democratic direction, but not nearly to the extent that the men are trending the opposite direction. And the two in between, the non-college women and the college men, are completely flat over the last six years. So we're dividing a little bit more. I think the men are pushing it because they moved a little bit more, pushing us in a little bit more of a Republican direction. We need um, to get I'll, to your last question. Yeah, uh, I'll answer this one real quick. Do the parties use your information or do they use their own? Um, how does their polling differ from yours? Um, as a journalist, um, they actually use a lot of the Marquette University Law School polls as the base poll. There's all these other national polls, NBC Merit polls um, that they use a lot. But with so many, um, this one I think is pretty reliable. Um, a lot of people... Um, as reporters go to this poll, uh, most reporters report on every single time this poll comes out, and candidates themselves, depending where they are, either brag about it or are asked about it. Um, you're down, you know, take uh, Vukmir and Baldwin, for example. Um, uh, Vukmir was down 11 points. Just depends. You know, of course, Baldwin's going to use that in her advantage, but Vukmir, of course, her general response would be, it's just a poll, it's just a snap, snapshot, snapshot in time. So things can change 38 days away, you never know what's going to happen. Um, so yes, parties do use um, the polls often in what I see. And last question, why were the polls so off in 2016 in Wisconsin? And why were the polls wrong about Hillary? You know, I see we're out of time. And, uh, <laughs> I think... But I have to go now. <laughs> He has asked this so much, even had to ask so in the other room. Um, it's going to be right there on my gravestone. I know it's going to so. be there. Um, so here's the quick version of it. Yeah. Um, it wasn't a turnout difference that we where we messed up. Um, first of all, let me say, 34 polls done in the state mm -hmm. during the fall, not one of us had Trump ahead. Mm -hmm. So at least I've got good... Miserable to, company. Yeah. You can go back. Um, but there's a substantive point. We used a variety of methodologies. Some of those were robocalls. Some were online. Some were live interview like mine. We filter for likely voters in different ways. But none of us got it right. Now, what that means is there's not a simple methodological switch that if I just had the gumption to flip that, would have guaranteed the right result. So, you know, that's a geeky thing, but it's where I live. Um, the second is turnout was actually very good in our estimates. We divided the state into six regions. We were within one point of the actual turnout in five of those regions and within a point and a half in the other region. So that, that's way good. If you'd told me ahead of time we were going to be that good on turnout, I would have been delighted not knowing what was waiting for me. We also got the white working class rural vote really well. Our vote errors didn't come in the Northwest or the Southwest, where Trump did much better than expected from past voting patterns there. Where we really missed it were Republicans in the Milwaukee suburbs, who in the actual vote voted less for Trump than they did for Romney four years earlier but voted 14 points more for Trump than they told us in our last survey. And in the Green Bay area, by six points more. 
I think that the answer there is more about the conflicted feelings of Republican voters in those areas who did not like Trump in our measures, but also didn't like him in the sense that they voted for Cruz in the primary overwhelmingly and underperformed voting for him for Romney, even though they gave him a solid majority. I think instead the issue was Republicans who were reluctant about Trump were also incredibly negative about Hillary Clinton. And so it wasn't the case that if in 2008, say, you were a Republican and for some reason you weren't that fond of John McCain or you thought it's time for a change or something, you at least considered voting for Obama. And in fact, a fair percentage crossed over to vote for Obama. But in this particular circumstance, it was a really, really small number. I heard from someone in the Democratic campaign that in their sampling, 0% of undecideds in the end broke to Clinton. Uh, mines are not that big. Mine's more like two-thirds to Trump and 75% to Trump in people who disliked both. But Trump got 75% of the people that didn't like either. So that is the huge asymmetry. Is it the Comey letter that helped tip it over? Is it this antipathy for Clinton that I'm talking about, especially with Republican voters? All of those are on the table. Um, but that's, that's the answer, and now I'm really going to have to go. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. If you like it, please give us a rating or a review. We'd appreciate it. We're also releasing audio from the fest on some of our other podcasts here at the Cap Times. Shows like The Corner Table, The Madsplainers, and Cap Times Talks. Be sure to give those a listen. I'm Eric Lawrenson, and thanks again for tuning in.